Welcome to Horses for Future. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Manda Scott. Manda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. If you are new to this podcast, we're exploring ways in which horse owners can help in the climate change crisis. Why horse owners in particular? Because as a group, we have land. You can keep your dogs and your cats in small apartments, but our horses need space. And space means land. So we're exploring ways in which we can manage our pastures, not only so we create healthier, more biodiverse grazing for our horses, but also so we can sequester more carbon in the soil. Manda is about to launch a new online project called Accidental Gods. In the previous podcast, she explained the intent for this interactive website. In the website, Manda will be sharing meditations and visualizations. She wants people to find a state of joyful curiosity from which to build the habit of meditating. And she wants people to be successful. So her idea was to start with short five-minute meditations and then gradually lengthen them out as people form the habit, the desire, to meditate. When I heard Manda talking about her project, I immediately thought, oh, she's talking about loopy training. And if she wants people to change their behavior and form a new habit, we need to be talking to my good friend, Dr. Michaela Hempen. Michaela is all about science. So the shamanic work, the meditations, they're not in her wheelhouse. But looking at what is needed to change behavior absolutely is. So here was a place where Manda's shamanic visions and Michaela's hard science could intersect. So we took advantage of the internet to have a conversation together. In part one, Manda described her vision for accidental gods. And I defined loopy training, and we talked about the powerful changes that can emerge when you start using the tiniest of clean loops. So at this point, we turn to Michaela to describe the research project she's been doing on cribbing. We'll pick up where we left off by having Michaela define what cribbing is. Yeah, okay, so um, cribbing or crib biting, depending on where you are, uh, is a behavior where the horse is, um, is placing his upper incisor teeth on a horizontal surface and pulls back and um, thereby creating a grunting noise. And this behavior is repeated over and over and over again. It's very specific. Um, if you watch a video, it would be very, very clear what this behavior looks like. Yeah, once you've seen a cribber, you know exactly what, what we're talking about. And it, yes. it has some health issues associated with it. One of the most obvious ones is the potential to wear down the front teeth. Yes, and the welfare concerns that we uh, that are maybe even more important, whereas people don't want to have a cribber in their barn, and um, it's distressing to watch a cribber um, 
repetitively doing that same behavior over and over again and you also hear it. So you hear the pull and you hear the grunt and uh, it's, it can be such a high frequency that it's, it's for the people around, they, they can't bear it. So these horses are often sold away, they are not accepted in certain barns, um, their price is much lower, so they, they are handed over more frequently than other horses. And the various ways in which people have tried to manage cribbing, the, the one that sits the most easily with people is to change the way the horse is being managed. So we often associate cribbing with horses in stalls. Um, so the, the whole welfare of let's, let's get the horses turned out in social groups, let's get them more turnout so they're turned out in pasture, in social groups, the things that we should be doing for all horses. But often for cribbers, you can do that and the horse will still crib, which is, I think, what originally got you interested in looking at cribbing. Yeah, that's what got me interested. I said, how can this be such a, this behavior, where we ticked all the boxes with a horse that we had that was cribbing and he was out in the field, he was with friends, he got hay, he was not, uh, he didn't have stressful training or riding and he would still crib and I didn't, I didn't understand why he continued. And um, yes, and the, the fact that we have not, I, we were not able to, not we, I mean the, the community, not able to identify uh, um, a way to help these horses just shows how strong that habit is. Yes. It's a very strong habit, very... And people will, will, another way that people try and control it is they'll put cribbing collars on the horse. So this is a, a collar that goes on the horse's throat just behind the, the ears and it's tightened. And some of them have little sharp points in them, sort of like the prong collar that people, some people put on dogs. And so that when the horse cribs, that collar creates considerable discomfort and, and they'll sometimes really tighten it. I've seen some horses that just had incredibly tight cribbing collars on and they still cribbed. They still crib, yes. They have bruises on their skin and uh, yes, they still crib. So yeah. that's why then science went more into investigating if uh, there's something internal, uh, some they get some kind of relief cribbing that is more important to the horse, if you want, than the pain from, from cribbing if they had put on a cribbing collar, for example. So what is going on inside the horse? Uh, is there some organic some pathology uh, that would cause the horse to crib in order to relieve that pain, even though they also have the competing pain from the outside. If you just think of it, it's terrible. Just imagine. I mean, imagine you have, you have a horse that is internally having pain and is trying to resolve it, and then you put on a cribbing collar on top, so he has both pains and he can choose which of the two is worse. Terrible. Yes. Yes. I mean, one, one of the most hor horrific things that I've seen was a, it was a video, a sales video for the electronic collar. And they were using it so every time this mare cribbed, she would get shocked. Oh, but she had a foal nursing. So she was being shocked as her foal was nursing. The associations there are just, just horrific. 
And that was a, a advertising video. Yes, that's hard to believe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They have so, it, but but it's really it's the people who can't. And it's mostly it's the people can't stand watching these cribbers and um, this behavior, and then they resort because it's very stigmatizing. So I think it's a lot in the um, the other horse owners who would look upon you like, what have you done with your horse? Your horse is privy. Right. And there's also there's also that belief in the horse world that cribbing uh, leads to colic. The evidence is not there, but it doesn't that doesn't matter if you know if you it it's if you say it often enough. And this is what you've, this is what you've been led to believe. Part of the reason that we put those collars oh, on, horses will, will pick it up, yeah, right? That idea that it's, right. it's somehow contagious is huge. Yeah, it's yeah. not that we have the circumstances in our barn that make horses crib. It's that one horse cribs and then the others catch it from the cribbing horse. Right. And, and the the kind of correlation is not causation. So the reason that we that that a a perfectly kind owner might choose to put a cribbing collar on is not because they're a horrific person, but because they're afraid of colic. And and they're and they've been told that cribbing horses have a higher incidence of colic and if you can put the cribbing collar on that that will keep your horse. And from. that is so strong still. I mean the vet it's the veterinarians who are convinced mm. the veterinarians mm. give that advice. I just have a, a comment from somebody uh, in my campaign now who said she talked to her vet and the vet said that it caused cribbing uh, sorry that cribbing caused colic and um, she sent me that reference which I know is the only reference that has is a risk factor analysis uh, that's the only one that is a little bit of evidence but it's not it doesn't prove causation because it's an it's an observational study it's not an experiment mm -hmm. um, and it's the only one that found an association all the other studies are questionnaires so questionnaires really in that context don't mean anything at all. Right. And even though there is such weak evidence, the vets keep on telling that it causes. I think, to be honest, as a vet, I was told that this was the case and I had no reason to, you know. Question people, it. Yeah, we don't have the bandwidth to go back to look at everything and you just don't question it, you just believe it. And because the general consensus is this you go with the general consensus unless you have a reason to step outside and start questioning stuff and you know on the surface it makes sense because these horses appear to be stressed you know they're not necessarily they're they're cribbing more than they're eating their hay they may have uh there you see a fairly high incidence of cribbing in thoroughbreds i don't know whether the studies have been done to see whether that's a higher incidence in thoroughbreds or not. But no, there is, there is. There is, okay. And certainly given the way that thoroughbreds are often managed, uh, where they are weaned early, started in training early, kept in stalls, the diet is very restricted, turnout is often restricted, you know, that you would have a population that has a high incidence of ulcers would not be a surprise. And that a certain number of them would show colic uh, would not be a surprise. And we humans are really good at seeing patterns even where the real uh, cause and effect is not there. So if somebody is putting a cribbing collar on a horse, it's not because they want to inflict pain on the horse, but because they are afraid of something that's even worse, which is colic. 
And usually they've gone through already a list of things. So right. they may have changed the environment or provided more hay and friends and it still continues and they have done taste deterrents and they have done this and that and nothing helped and then they try the cribbing color. Right. And that doesn't help. And so then you're and then you're stuck. You know, you're you're stuck. They can see the cribbing color and they can see that they've done something. You yeah. know, an awful lot of this is virtue signaling. Yeah, because yeah. we don't know what else to do. You know, we're stuck. Yeah, We've yeah. got this horse. I mean, a lot of people hang on to them and they definitely get sold, but they bought it. Everyone around them is telling them they shouldn't have bought it in the first place, that they're bad and their horse is bad, and they have to do something visible to yes. show that they're doing something. And mm -hmm. it, you know, the whole thing is incredibly sad. We just need to, if we can offer them alternatives that actually work, I suspect they will leap on them. I hope they will anyway. Which is now, Michaela, what you have been exploring so now we are are we at are we at the point where we introduce blondie or is there more background that we need to provide no let's introduce blondie okay <laughs> <laughs> so blondie is a uh, six-year-old quarter horse mare that i'm working with and um for almost four years now and she's um currently boarded in a in Italy, in a boarding barn, there are 85 horses now, I think. And uh, she has a standard box, so three by three meters, and some long, narrow paddock where she can go in and out. It's not terribly big. It's maybe the same size as the box, but a bit longer, which, is, uh, which has a electric fencing. And she has two cribbing points uh, in the box, which is the water, water trough and the feeder. And she spends basically 24 hours there, except the one hour training that she's taken out. She has horses next to her, but it's not possible to have any contact because there's the electric fencing. So that's where she lives. Um, she uh, was brought as a three-year-old from the breeder. So the owner at that time knew that she was cribbing, um, but he thought that it would go away. He thought that with the gentle training he's doing with her, <laughs> um, it, will, it will disappear. I think that's what, what he had in mind. It's what he hoped. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. We can but hope. <laughs> Anyway, he was kind enough to let me work with her. Um, so I got the support from uh, Jesus Rodales Ruiz from um, University of North Texas and Mary Hunter and Alex um, to advise me. And we have, yeah, we have really, because it's, it's a completely new way of thinking. So I'm coming from the veterinary field and I sort of, I knew everything about uh, enrichment and all the cribbing colors and, and all whatnot on that side, but I knew very little about behavior analysis. But what I knew was that, I mean, there is, there is repetitive behave, behavior in people and we don't leave them, you know, we try to help them. Mm. So is there not something we can learn from, from there, which is something the veterinarians have not looked at. So I was investigating and reading and learning and studying if there's anything we can use. And I thought this, this could work. We should try that. 
Yes. And yes, and I think this definitely is the best approach at the moment, at least, to to find, um, and and that's what Blondie tells us. So um, I cannot describe the whole research in detail, but um, roughly, so what we are trying to achieve is we, we are looking at creating clean loops in the sense that find moments or create the environment, this is the important part, create the environment in a way that allows moments without cribbing, which in Blondie's case is linked to hay, to the feeding of hay. So as she's eating, she, she cribs. That's the strong habit she has. As soon as she has hay, she would crib. But she needs to eat, so we cannot take away the hay. So we have to find a way to let her eat hay, but create the environment in a way where she does not think of cribbing. So the cues are not there to tell her, or as I'm eating hay, I'm supposed to crib. So the environment gives her different, different signals for her to start another habit, okay. which is still hay. It's still, we are still using hay because I can't replace the hay, but I can change the environment in a different way uh, to create a new pattern. And with that, you have to start, to start um, with small loops and you have to understand how cues work, how the environment works um, in, in the relationship between the environment and the behavior and how this all links together. You need to really understand that and then use it to your advantage and start creating a new habit that gets eventually stronger and very carefully design the environment to support that new habit. So we talked earlier about the fact that cribbing was often an, an internal pain and then when people applied external pain to try and stop it, the horse was caught between internal pain and external pain. But what you're saying is that environmental signals are the primary cue or environmental signals somehow supplementary cue? Because presumably internal pain is still happening. I don't think it's an internal pain. I said that's what people say. Oh, I see. Okay, right. I don't think so because the science, uh, the veterinary science looked at that because obviously we are trained to look for pathology inside the animal. That's yeah. our training. Right. And, so and it's normal. Somebody wants to do a study where they, they injected naloxone and, and cribbing went down, didn't it? So they assumed that they were doing it to spontaneously create yes. internal endorphins, which I'm guessing if you give anybody naloxone, it hurts. So I'm guessing that <laughs> correlation is not a causation thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know, even if it was there in the beginning and they, it did relieve some pain, we are talking about horses now that are not in the beginning, in the learning phase, they are in the, mm -hmm. in the habit mm -hmm. phase. Yep. So um, that there could be some discomfort but um, I'm not, the cribbing does not resolve that, that discomfort. I think. So when you started with, with Blondie, you watched her over a 24 hour period, correct? So yes, you, you, several you days a, actually. Right, so you had a camera in her stall and you could record everything that she was doing through a 24 hour cycle. And there were times in that 24 hour cycle where she's not cribbing. Yes, so we, um, I did that actually with two horses um, and that was very interesting because um, the two horses had completely opposite patterns, whereas Blondie started cribbing when she got fed, so the hay was delivered and her cribbing peaked and for the other horse it was the opposite. Uh, as soon as he got his feet, both hay and concentrates, he would stop and he would eat 
he will not mm -hmm. crib. And his cribbing peaked when uh, he didn't have anything to eat. So the two were really opposite, which shows again that we need to look at the individual and not just say cribbing is that, you know, yes. described in the textbook, this is what cribbing is. No, you have to look at the individual. You have to look at uh, under which conditions does this horse crib exactly. And if I change this and if I change this, what happens? If I change that, what does the horse tell me? Which links again to both Alex's training and to Feldenkrais where we are asking questions. So also as a scientist, you have to go and ask your horse questions. Say, if I change that, what does the horse tell me? And you can, you can, tweak, you can tweak your protocol according to what the horse tells you. So one of the first things that you did is you changed for Blondie you changed the time of the feeding. Is that correct? Yes, because in her, in her, in her 24-hour observation, we saw that there is this increased frequency as the hay was fed. So now you could argue, well, no, that's, that's discressing too much. So what, what I found was, okay, the, she's fed at this time, it peaks. And uh, now let's see if we change the environment, does that have an effect? on Blondie's cribbing. So we shifted the feeding time. Whereas she normally fed in the morning at around roughly 6.30, we fed at six o'clock, at seven o'clock and at eight o'clock. We did that twice for each of the times. And we found that as we shifted the feeding time, the cribbing peak shifted together with the feeding time, showing that the, the environment has an effect on her cribbing. Because we, we could actually control the cribbing by changing the feeding time, which shows that it's not internal, in an internal mechanism that, you know, at this point in time, I need to crib, but it is because we changed the environment that we could change the time of cribbing. So the environment is hugely important to the onset of cribbing. And so from there, where did you go? From there, I had a short targeting session with her once uh, that was sort of just because I'm a clicker trainer and I want to do a bit of clicker training with her and I fed her carrots uh, for touching um, a, a target can't remember what it was I think it was a frisbee or something so as she touched the frisbee I would click and give her a piece of carrot and she stayed with me for a couple of minutes was engaged in the game but then I lost her and she went she went cribbing. So that told me that if I feed her carrots, same as with the hay, she would go cribbing. Mm. And I could use that to start cribbing so that I can try something else to stop the cribbing. So I had, I had an on button and then I could try different things and see whether there were off buttons, if you want. And, and um, so, I tried with scratching because she, at that time, I think she was wearing a rug and you know, the horses, they like to be scratched, especially under the rug and she, she likes the contact. So she sort of enjoyed that, which I've also found just by interacting with her that she seems to enjoy that. So I fed her the piece of, uh, the piece of carrot, which would then, is the on button, so she would start cribbing. And whenever she, um, actually before she even went cribbing, I tried to scratch her, but she went cribbing anyway. And then as soon as she stopped, I would scratch her again. And I wanted to see if that had an impact on, on her cribbing. And as a matter of fact, so she, I fed the carrot, 
she went cribbing very high frequency. She paused, I scratched, and she did not go back to cribbing, mm. which um, was the proof for us that there is a competing reinforcer for cribbing. So whatever she gets out of the cribbing, so whatever is maintaining that behavior, there's another behavior or another reinforcer that can compete with the cribbing which is not a practical solution because I cannot be there cribbing the horse, uh, scratching the horse the whole time. <laughs> and she may not like it for longer than 10 minutes. But um, this opens the possibility for, for operant um, procedures because we could, we could show that A, the environment is, is important. So the environment has an effect on the behavior and there's, there are competing reinforcers that I'm delivering, that I'm controlling that can compete with what she has, sort of. So these were really two key concepts that um, opened up this whole door of going to this, uh, using operant procedures to, to address this behavior. And so from there you went, at what point did you start to change the, the environment? Oh, we did so many things. No, no. <laughs> and and I wonder, I wonder now, you know, if we if we um, would replicate it with another horse, hopefully at some point, uh, which shortcuts we could take, and which as this would be also interesting, and which parts of the whole training are still important, even though they seem not to be important. So we, uh, I've done. Still, I went back to targeting. Did a lot of uh, targeting training with her, and eventually. She could do target training and eat two kilos of carrots without cribbing. So the carrots were no longer causing her to crib. And she could really focus for very long on the, uh, well, very long. I think there were 10, 10 minute sessions or so. But she would crib as soon as the session ended. So the sort of she's concentrating and focus and in the game. And then I would turn around to set up the camera or to end the session or whatever, and she would go crib. But this was also important because I now could feed her carrots without her losing her to cribbing. So that was also important. And then I shifted to feeding hay because eventually I want her to eat hay without cribbing. So I did the targeting session, but instead of feeding her carrots, I fed tiny, tiny pieces of hay um, because if I gave her more, she would go start crib. But if I, again, a clean, clean, small, tiny loop. So yes. I thought, how can I make the hay not trigger cribbing? So I figured that how I presented the hay. So in that moment, she was in the box and I was out in the aisle and I had set up a, a wall target for her to touch and I would then feed her from the outside. So I, um, by experimenting, by asking questions, and listening to her, I figured a way how I could feed the tiny bit of hay without losing her to cribbing. So I started with small amounts and increased them slowly. So in the end, I could actually just drop in large pieces of hay and she would stay with me in the, in the targeting exercise. So this piece, for example, you could say maybe it was not necessary because later on I'm not doing any clicker training with her. In, in the ones where I'm, what I'm doing now, but I sort of introduced the hay again differently. So maybe this is important, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to ask another horse to see. Yes. Um, 
so we did that and then we started um, changing the environment so changing the environment in creating two different conditions whereas you have a, a baseline condition everyday condition that's her life and a training condition which is when i'm there where i change the environment to signal let me call it a non-cribbing condition so this is to signal when when you see this environment when you are in this environment cribbing does not occur so yes. to differentiate these these two stimulus control conditions so this is your normal behavior do whatever you want in this behavior i'm creating an environment whereby cribbing is not signaled it's not part of your it's not part of it it's just there are just no cues to make you think that you, you could that cribbing is on the it's not on the menu cribbing is not on the menu so this um these training conditions um which is surprising i should add is i went there only saturday and sunday and i was there for less than an hour so all the other times she's practicing her cribbing as always but in the times i'm there She's not cribbing. So I'm entering, changing the environment. This is completely new. So it's the same box, but it appears to be a total different environment. Like if I would take her, you know, out to, to a hotel, something completely different. <laughs> and on this hotel, whenever you eat, hey, cribbing is not on the menu. And this, these other conditions, they are, so, they are also so strong that she they they, uh, they can they can uh, it's not even competing it's just not it's just not there cribbing is not if you but you have to train it i mean that's something you have to build from very 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 small you cannot just start if i would lump then she, the cribbing would come back you have to be really careful and really in micro millimeters change the uh, change it so you're, you, you created this different appearance in the stall. This is the non-cribbing environment. And you've now reached the stage, and you're, you're fading those cues at this point so that the stall looks increasingly... Increased. Yes, because it, eventually we want, of course, we want, we want her to be uh, non-cribbing everywhere. Her yes. life should be non-cribbing. Yes. So you have to you have to design it in a way, and that's where we're still experimenting. So I don't know yet where we'll be in the end. But the idea is that this clean loop that we created, this training environment that we created, try to to fade that in a way that she does not even realize that the other environment is no longer there. So she's we are transitioning here. Like I took her to the hotel, and now all of a sudden she's living in the hotel. She's not mm. going back to the hotel. She's now living in the hotel. Cribbing is not on the menu, she can live without it. But gradually over time, the hotel will start to look like home. Used to. Yes. Yes. As you fade the new cube. Well, that is from the outside, but from, from, from the perception, from the okay. cues this that is, she gets, right. she now lives in the hotel, hotel. even okay, though right. it's exactly the same place. But this is now the hotel. She doesn't go back. As soon as you're going back to the normal, she will crib. Yeah. Okay. So. That's it. So and and currently she's gone forty four zero minutes. Yes, she can uh, under training condition. She can eat 
hay. And training condition means it's really a tiny, tiny uh, change in the environment. There's nothing bigger. It's, it's really, really <coughs> tiny. She can now eat her hay 40 minutes without cribbing. And 40 minutes is because, uh, not because then she started cribbing, but because I ended it because I needed to do something else. Right. And she had been cribbing, what, cribbing once every minute? Yes, that's, that's, uh, that, that was the, the frequency I calculated in the beginning, and I'm not expecting that this changed. Right. So I've just done this weekend some... Um, so the, the curious thing is that you can, you can swap from one condition to the other, right up one after the other, and you only do a tiny change in the environment, and you can stop the cribbing immediately. So she's been cribbing 20 minutes, I changed the environment, she would eat her hay 20 minutes without cribbing. I remove, I go back to the normal condition and she goes back to cribbing, but lower, the lower frequency. Mm. But practicing cribbing, change in the environment, immediately no cribbing, that means to me that it comes from the environment. It's not an internal acidity or I don't know what. It's not internal. It's not coming from changes in her brain or, or whatnot. It's not inside. It's from the environment. It comes from the, the, the stimuli in the environment that trigger, that cue her to crib. If those cues are not there, she's not cribbing. Which certainly matches what we, our current understanding, our growing understanding of habits. And they basically become shortcuts for our brains, ways for the brain to take a rest. When you get up in the morning and you're, you're not having to actively think about, oh, I need to brush my teeth, you just suddenly find you're standing in front of the sink and, oh, I feel as though I should reach over to the correct toothbrush and brush my teeth. It's not something that you debate with yourself. You might have been thinking 10 minutes before, oh, I'm really tired this morning, maybe I'll skip brushing my teeth. But once you're standing in front of the bathroom sink, that habit pattern takes over. Our, our lives are run by habits. We would be exhausted if they weren't. So what this relates to, I think, is when you want to set up a new habit, you are providing clues for how we should go about it. So if I'm saying, oh, I think I'd like to participate in the the meditations that Amanda has set up for me, and I'm going to pull up the website, and I'm going to sit in my comfortable chair, and I'm going to, with my computer, but I've, this is where I would normally work, and now I'm going to do the meditation, but there's been no change in the environment. Yes, you I, cannot expect a change. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm, the, the change will not be there. No. Oh, interesting. So do I need to build into the instructions how to change your environment? Yes. Yeah, I think you should because changing... Set yourself a piece and, of lighting and, and, candle, anything to change the environment. That well, be... not anything because it should be something that goes towards, I mean, thinking of shaping that goes towards the behavior that you want to build. No. So can you think of any, how do you start, how you can make it as small as possible? The one, first one would be to subscribe to to the website, no? So you'd have to get people to open your computer and go to that website. 
Uh, how small and is the loop that we can build? Yes. Okay, exactly. Nice. Open the computer, go to the website and fill out the registration form. I don't know, but it has yeah. to be building towards where you want them to, to go. And then that, that the habit that we want to get people to get into is tomorrow that I open the website and pull up the next and pull up a meditation. And the day after I open the website and pull up a meditation. So doing it the one time is great, but it's not going to get you where you want want us to go. There's a great book by James Clear, um, Atomic Habits, okay. um, that helps how to, well, somebody decides to build a habit and it gives you some guidance on how you can do it because uh, for example, set up specific um, times helps. So, and then link it to a habit that you already have. I found that very interesting. So say if you wanted to exercise in the morning, you first you, you prepare your cues. So you could in the evening at least set out your trainers. So they're ready in the morning. And then try to introduce um, like every, every morning you have a specific routine. So say I get up, uh, and I brush my teeth and I get dressed and then you insert into that routine you insert sort of the the cue that would start the other routine and mm -hmm. this 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 one you you make it really small so I don't know I have to make something up but let's say I get up and brush my teeth and at this point I would normally maybe get dressed and at this point instead I would put a reminder for myself to to pack the trainers into my bag that I take to work. So you're building that cue into a already existing routine so that previous cues cue you to do the new one. Right. And would you do that for, so you put the shoes in your bag for a week before you ever even thought about actually putting them on your feet and doing something? So you're not doing anything, you're just putting it in Just the putting the shoes in the bag. But you, you, would you build that into a habit? Exactly. Yes. So you have the first kernel. Right. And then later on, you would maybe, um, yeah, put them on, yeah. but you don't need to run. You put them back into right into it. And he, he suggests uh, any, any first um, run or first trial, if you want, uh, shouldn't be more than two minutes. Oh, this is so so if you put your shoes on and maybe stand up and do two steps, but not more than two minutes, you have to go back, put them back off and continue your other things not more than two minutes right in the beginning until you have that pattern it's already fluent and then you can start shaping towards what you want to achieve if you want to do a 5k run in the end you 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 shape that up but the the initial habit building has to be really solid and first before you start thinking of shaping a 30 minutes meditation you start with two minutes okay I was starting with five, but I am shortening the loops as we speak. <laughs> there will be a very different... Make it smaller, probably it's even yeah. two seconds. So, so I wonder if that beautiful, the, the sounding of the bell could be part of this. And that, so that you begin to crave that sound. Is there, is there a way that you could have something on the website where I could go and simply click a button and I would hear that bell. Yeah, but then, so 
so this is very interesting other than i want to be able to meditate because i believe that we can create conscious evolution and i want to be a part of it what is the reinforcer as we go along here um because you know otherwise it's just another sound so i have two questions first is what's the reinforcer and second does the bell constitute an environmental stimulus or is it the case of so we want people to ideally wake up and if they can stay in the alpha phase of half sleep so actually what i want is for people to well before they're even properly woken up slip the earphones in and switch on to the very short even shorter than I. okay so then what what we need to establish is the night before before you've retired you have set up whatever device you're going to listen to so that the, so that it is easy for you to just reach over click on do i do that for a week before i then or you know an amount of time before they then you know put them in my ears and then take them out and then get up and then next day i put them in my ears and i switch on and i get... I, I think it's more where the where you focus the attention in building the habit is not in the meditations themselves because the meditations they are a wonderful experience so there is there is an enormous amount of reinforcement that is embedded in them but we all have busy days and busy mornings or groggy mornings and oh i'm really you know tired this morning and the effort that it takes to turn on the computer and and pull up the website is just it's beyond me and anyway my email is calling me and i'll go straight to the email and now i've missed that opportunity that you're looking for so maybe the place where you build the habit is in all the preparation so that the night before i have set things up before i've gone to sleep I have set things up so that it is very easy for me to access. The very first thing is to access that meditation. So the question is, what would I be listening to it on? So what would, be, what would I have next to my bedside? Is this something that I listen to on a, a cell phone? I was imagining everybody would have a cell phone by their bed. Okay. okay. And, and you just have it downloaded so it's ready. And you, I guess, as part of the preparation, you would set it up. So all you have to do is, however, you switch on your phone, you know, a, a finger fingerprint, and it's there on the front of your phone. And all you have to do is click the arrow. So then what we. But they need to download it first. So that yeah, that's download, so downloading. But downloading is a one time event. We don't, we don't build a habit of downloading, do we? It's just there. That's part of the signing up phase. Ah, okay. So now you need the instructions for this is so the so the missing piece is the instructions for this is this is how you would download it onto your phone because you can't assume that we all know this and this is how you set things up so that these meditations are easily available to you first thing in the morning yeah and that's the missing piece Yep, I have just downloaded Atomic Habits onto my computer. I'm reading it by tomorrow morning. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, that sounds really interesting. Um, so, Michaela, this is, so let's assume that I've, I've got my instructions set right and people are able to download stuff onto their phone. There is no environmental change other than the fact that your phone is by the bed with the earphones already set and you put those into your ears and press the go button. Is there 
other environmental changes that we can construct. Let's assume that what we're trying to do is to help somebody as they wake up and before the day shatters into all of the stuff that we have to do to en encourage them to start the meditations at that moment. I think you'd have to build in cues because otherwise everything is the same. So yeah, exactly. people have to think about, you know, I put stick out, sticky notes everywhere, even on my phone, paper, right. sticky notes yeah, I put yeah. on my phone, if it's really important. <laughs> okay. And that's an environmental cue, that's brilliant. Yes. yes. So for example, people, me, I, when I wake up, I have the alarm on my phone. So when I wake up, I pick up my phone. So you could, for example, put a sticky note on your phone. So as you're oh. picking it up and it Just says... Set your alarm clock off. Okay, it says, remember... And it says, open the meditation app. Yeah. For you example. really want to do this. Love me from the night before. <laughs> I, I exactly. Your, <laughs> yes. I am your past yes. self. Remember the contact. Self. I really <laughs> wanted to do this. Okay. And, you, and then probably um, also there I would limit it. So I say... Um, so you have the queue that would tell you, and it, at first you only open the app. You only open it. You close it, you do your normal thing. Oh, so you're not asking them to already do anything with it. So I would just okay. say, look at your phone. There okay. is a new queue. So you're building in a new, a new signal into the yes. routine, which would then be your gateway into another habit. Right. So I'm just opening the app, close it, do whatever. And know, then his life is and normal. After a while, and as, as soon as this becomes, you know, then probably people would say, okay, I'm, I've already opened it. I may as well just see what's there. So it probably comes out of, because it's yes. so easy now, they may yeah. say, look, I've already dedicated half a second to opening the app. I may as well look what's there. Yeah. And, okay. and then that's your entry. Yeah. Okay. Hi ho, if we managed conscious evolution, you guys are the key. <laughs> This is going to be so cool. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It's it's bringing it's bringing different repertoires together to create the greater whole. I need a whole new phase of beta testing before we get <laughs> No, I, and 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 I think people will, you know, if you give people this idea of this is what you're doing, you know, by going through Blondie, the reason for going through Blondie is not because. We're talking to horse people who are passionately interested in cribbing because we've all seen cribbers, um, but because we want to create new habits. And this idea of, the, of change the environment, create a clean loop in that environment. I think one of the, one of the examples that we talk about a lot are uh, people who smoke. When you go into a movie theater, you can watch the whole movie without fidgeting because you can't smoke in the movie theater. But as soon as they step out into the lobby, that environment has completely different cues in it, different triggers, and they're immediately wanting to find the nearest exit so they can go smoke. So we're going to be, we're going to say, you know, with all the best intentions of the world, I would like to go through your meditations, but I have a pattern in my morning that doesn't yet include that. And so it's easier for me to just flow into my normal pattern and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Today, I, have a, I, I, can't, 
I can't manage it. I have too many other things on my plate. I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow comes. And what did, were you saying at the very beginning? How we keep thinking the same thoughts over and over again. So if my if, if the thoughts that I was thinking yesterday was, oh, I really want to do this, but uh, but it's so hard to open up open up the med, you know, and get the website open and the meditation there. And, oh, I can't do that right now. I've got to get up and get going because, you know, I've got to get to work. I'll do it tomorrow. And we and keep so doing that. Instructions of the fact that you do not have to open up the website every time you can download this onto your phone. But yes, okay, I hear you. Okay, so we yeah. Here. And I was writing just before we came online. I was writing the instruction set, but I'm I am already rewriting it in my head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and then about the early podcast, the first podcast, the second podcast should be about habit forming. Yeah. How we form habits and why we need to. Right. Because, right. So I read somewhere that um, if you do the same thing repeatedly for forty nine days, I read in one place and another place I read sixty six. Then it is hard work. Have you come across? I, I read 30, which is much more hopeful. It is, yeah. But then I went and looked at the original data and the LSE, and they, they got an average of 66, depending on what yeah. they were doing. But I think, I think a lot of it depends on the emotional. Because like, I, yes. I really believe that emotional states make a huge difference. Because other people have found that if you learn in a playful state, it's far, far faster. Things that you learn in play. So people who are practicing stuff for computer games, it can be as little as five repetitions. The Feldenkrais work, where there is no no fear or pain, learning can take place in a single session. All right, okay. You know, now, and they don't repeat. They don't repeat. Yeah, that's not repeat. They but never then you're repeat. not trying to build a habit, you're trying to learn something. And a habit is yeah. slightly different. You break habits, yes, actually, you yeah. break them. So, so have we any idea of the number of iterations or the number of habit-forming units that it takes to actually hardwire a habit? Or is that just too flexible depending on person and circumstances or horse and circumstances i wouldn't be bothered about what number that would be because as anything it depends on how how smart you are arranging the environment how smart you are if you do it really well i think you have all the cues there it takes you once or twice and you're in the habit already yeah because the the point michaela that you're finding with with blondie i mean the 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 real brilliance of this, and as you have said at other times, you know, this was t this has been slow going because it's not been done before. You know, we no, nobody else has been looking at cribbing in these this way, and that it's that it's been this collaborative exploration that with with you and Dr. Jesus for Salas Ruiz and Mary Hunter, and and I get to listen in occasionally, and it's that we're figuring this out. But once you start to be deliberate, it's like the loopy training. Good trainers train in loops, but they're not deliberate in the way they think about it. The more deliberate and intentful you are, the more efficient the process becomes. So if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I really, I really want to participate in what Manda's describing. And I want to use those meditations. So that's my intent. How can I set up for myself the, a good habit pattern where I'm not waking up in the morning and going, oh, not today, I'll do it tomorrow. 
So what I would take from this is I'm going to take the responsibility for setting up my environment so that first thing, so that there is some change in that environment that helps to trigger me into reaching over for my phone, noticing that I've put a sticky tape, a sticky note on it, and opening the meditation. So some of it is we give the instructions, and some of it is that each individual is going to find a way to set up the environment for themselves. What is it that they, and it may be a matter of what do I take away or what do I put into the environment? Is there something that I need to take out? Or is there something that I need to put in that will take me off of my normal path and put me into this new path of behavior, which is really what we're talking about in terms of the whole climate crisis. Yeah. You know, as I was thinking that, how, when do, I'm we, go- how do we shape the whole new set of behavior? Yeah. When I go to the grocery store, it's so easy to reach for, I don't know, the, the apples that are packaged in plastic or the apples that are plastic packaged in in paper bags you know how do we start to insert that thought of what is the impact that these that my actions are having so it's it's how do we build these intentful habits for ourselves and part of the so what in part what we're doing with the meditations then is learning how to do it so that we can do it elsewhere. Yeah. Yes, yes. One of my very earliest teachers said, we don't meditate to become better people, we meditate to become better meditators. But actually, we do, I think, I think that was a view for a long time, but actually I think we meditate to become better people because the habits of meditation are good habits for everything yes. else. And actually learning how to create habits, I am realizing talking with you guys, is a fantastically useful skill in its own right it's an essential skill because we have the habit of living the way that we've been living for the last however many decades we've been on the planet and there are things that need to change so how do we build different habits different habits of thought different habits of action and we can't just we don't want to just upend our entire life um, though, if we don't do anything that may come, uh, it's going to happen. Uh, so we'd like it to happen in a way that's not painful, but yeah, we want the soft landing. Yeah, we want the soft landing. So how can we begin in a kind way for ourselves, in a kind way, to create new habits? And it seems that so. This is part of what we're talking about here. You know, and, and as we learn how to form new habits on an individual level, we can also begin to learn how to build new habits at the level of community. In the power of habit, it seems to me that the, and I want to say the author is Charles Duhigg, but I may have the wrong book. Yeah, yeah, it's Duhigg. Okay, thank you. Uh, it seems to me that in the last part of his book, he talks about 
the building habits at, at the level of community. But it's been a while since I've read his book, so I would have to go back and, and look at that because it's been a been a couple of years. Another book I need to write. Oh, Power of Habit is a really interesting one and very readable. Okay. I think you should start with that. And then the second one is The Atomic it's, Habits. It builds on, on the first okay. one. Yeah. Okay. The Power of Habit. I'm sitting there now. Okay. Thank you. Um, all right. Yeah. And then we need to talk to a guy called Daniel from Lichtenberger. But I'll talk to you about him later because I think he would be a really interesting person in terms of build the, the kinds of habits we might want to build. Um, yeah. The Power so, of Habits. The Power of Habits. Yeah, great book. This is going to be such an amazing resource, this podcast. I know. I know because it's, it's just we get to bring together different repertoires. And anytime you bring together, well, not anytime, but when you bring together different repertoires, that's where creativity sits. That's the, the generative theory of, of creativity. And so if, if we try and solve a problem from within just what we know, it's not as powerful as if I now look outside of what I nor how I normally think. You know, it's, it's, it goes straight back to what you were describing at the start. If I, if, if, what was the percentage, 90% of the thoughts that we think are the same thoughts that we thought yesterday? How am I ever going to have a new creative idea if I don't put something in from the outside? And so part of the reason for talking to one another and talking outside your area of interest or expertise is so that you've got the the pleasure and the joy of having a new creative thought because we are creative individuals we are creative beings we love being in the creative process and the, you know the proof of that is look at look at all that we've created but you know people who knit people who garden cooking all of these are examples of the creative process and and so that that pleasure, that joy of thinking about something in a way that we hadn't seen before is exciting. It's exciting. Reinforcing. Yes. Yeah. So, and that's really what this is about. And as we think about things in ways that we haven't thought about them before, that's when the potential for coming up with real solutions, things that can make a big difference, that's how it happens and it has to happen it has to happen so you talked about really loving the water and and i'm i just glanced behind me the snow is falling i have to drive in the snow to get back to the barn and i want to love the snow and and it it is beautiful this is why i live in snow country it is beautiful but i think at this point we should say what an amazing conversation. Thank you both for indulging me this, this afternoon. And we will say goodbye for now. Thank you, so Thank much. you very much. Thank you. Hang on, don't go away. We aren't done yet. We have a bit more to say about Blondie and about accidental gods. So first, Blondie. 
Michaela, before I let you go, there is another piece of Blondie's story that we need to talk about. So Blondie has been your research project for the past three years, and you are at the stage where things are real, the pieces are really coming together. The research is at a critical, critical stage. And in the first part of November, or end of October, I guess it was, Blondie's owner approached you and said that he had decided to sell her. And that you arranged with him that you could have a month to raise what he was asking for, for various reasons, you could not purchase her yourself. He was asking not, a, not an outrageous sum of money, but it was a significant uh, dent in, in anyone's pocketbook. And so you started a GoFundMe campaign for raising the money to purchase Blondie so that the research could be completed. You're at a stage in that where you have some very good news to announce. So would you like to share with people uh, where you are currently with that uh, campaign? Yes, yes, I really want to. So the owner had um, decided to sell her, but he was kind enough to give me the time to, to start this campaign. And uh, so he refrained from announcing it, uh, that he's ready to sell her and gave me the time. And um, through the podcast and also friends on horses podcast facebook campaigns and all whatnot which i all had to explore newly because i'm normally not campaigning <laughs> um but um, people have been super generous really uh, amazingly generous and uh, i have managed to to get the almost the entire amount uh, that he asked for blondie so i made an offer on friday which he accepted on Saturday, which Yay. is, <laughs> yes, so, so she'll be mine. Uh, now we have to, to do the transactions and all sorts of things, but uh, he, you know, in the horse world, we say verbally the contract, so it's yes. a valid contract. <laughs> so, so she'll be mine. Um, so thank you again to everybody. It's been really hugely important, not only for, for the horse, uh, for her own welfare. But I think this research is really, really important. And um, I'm really happy I can, I can continue with her. And also now I can take decisions in terms of her husbandry and how other things that probably will help me a lot also to, to improve a bit more on, on the research. Yes. So but, the other part of yes, the fundraiser. Yes, because your, uh, your fundraiser is not closed because I'm not closing the another part. fundraiser because the second, so the, the urgent priority is achieved. Yay, thanks a lot. Yes. I leave it open because I would like to publish it in an open access scientific journal, which um, has, a, has a price tag. So, um, and maybe people may not know, but they should also appreciate that when, when you find an interesting article online and you can actually, without being, without being uh, affiliated with some university or a scientific organization, you can read the full article, then very often this has been funded of some sort. Normally you only get to read the abstract. Yes, so I know so many times I will uh, see an interesting article that I would love to read. And I will follow the link, I'll go online, 
there's the abstract and I can't go any further. And you want more, exactly. That yes. can be very frustrating. So yes. if you're not an academic, you're, then you, you won't have access. Well, a good strategy though I can say here is write the first author an email. Very often they will send you the article. <laughs> yes. But nevertheless, I want this work to be accessible. So um, the fundraiser is open so we can collect, um, um, it's probably roughly around 1,500 euros. Uh, then it still goes through the peer review process. So the scientific quality standards are the same. Uh, so it's the same vigorous peer review as in any other journal. Um, but if they accept it, you can then sort of say, tick the box, um, I pay because I want it to be open access. And then the journal will publish it as open access and you don't have only the abstract, you get the full, um, the full article. And on top of that, uh, I would like to choose one where we can attach um, um, also videos, where you can access also videos. Because these videos are so impressive. Yes, they are. So impressive. They are. So people have to see because it's, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. <laughs> and I'll tell you, this, this work is already, it's already having an impact. So we, we had an email uh, after we published the Equosity podcast on this work. We had an email from somebody who listened to your podcast. She's a dog trainer. She has a boarding establishment. And one of the dogs that she has has this annoying habit of barking a lot. And annoying is would be her way of describing it, that this dog is an intense barker. But she noticed that the dog didn't bark when the dog was on a lead. So she took what she had heard from your podcast and used the lead as the no bark condition. And so the dog now can go off lead, but she's wearing the lead wrapped around her neck in a safe way, I've seen the video, so she's not gonna get choked, and she doesn't bark. That's incredible. That's yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. So there's... And you don't have to think up all these training plans and all whatnot. You just have to think of the right cues. Yes. Analyze which stimulus triggers the, uh, the behavior and think about how you can arrange it in a way so you get the benefit of the, yeah, to the benefit wow. of you and the dog and the horse and I just think... be smart about it. Yep. I think people, when they start really hearing this and appreciating what you are saying, that the wheels are really going to be turning both for the animals that people work with and also within our own lives in terms of what are the behavior patterns that you want to add, change, delete. This is, this is a, a protocol for doing it. It's really, it's really exciting. So to have this as an open access is really important. Yes, and I, I think so, definitely. So I leave it open and um, people would appreciate yeah. still small amounts so it's just we are just going towards 1500 that's not right so so if someone wants to go online and just send in you know like uh 10 i'm in the u.s so it'll be 10 dollars 10 euros whatever it'll it will all add up it doesn't have to be a big contribution if people like um i have put on the website um which um, uh, an email subscription form and you can leave me your email and I will send updates on, on Blondie's progress. Excellent, so. excellent. And I think the easiest way for people listening 
uh, to remember where to go is go to GoFundMe.com because people know that. GoFundMe.com and do a search on Blondie and Michaela Hempen and they'll find your campaign. And then from that campaign, you've got a link to a website that you set up for Blondie that gives even more detail and shows some just astounding video. Yes, yeah. yes. And I, this was today again. So, you know, this is repeatable. Uh, people may think, you know, this, I've just set it up. But what I've done today, where she would crib for 20 minutes and then I have the intervention, the training, and afterwards she would, back in her normal condition, not crib 14 minutes, 14 mm. minutes. It's amazing. 14 is cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's something that is, so once you understand the process, you can, you can repeat it. It's not, it's not a, you know, a pure chance. Right. This is repeatable. It's, right. Uh, it works. Right. <laughs> it works. It works. Yes, it's very exciting. So, so we'll send people off to the GoFundMe campaign. And again, I'll say thank you enormously to both of you. And now we will say goodbye. Wait, wait. There's just one more bit. When we recorded this podcast on December 2nd, Amanda was still testing her Accidental Gods website. Based on this conversation, she decided she had even more changes to make before it would be ready to go live. So if you're listening to this podcast in December of 2019, Accidental Gods will be ready to go live after the first of the year. And if you have found us after that time, you're in for a treat. I'm going to let Manda tell you a little bit more about what Accidental Gods is. Okay, thank you, Alex. So Accidental Gods is our project to bring the next evolutionary step to the world. We believe that the next evolutionary step will be one of consciousness, not just a tweak to our DNA, but a change in the way we are as humanity, a change in the way we interact with the web of consciousness that is the rest of the planet. And so we've built a website called accidentalgods.life because .life is a, is a thing now, you can get it. And we have a whole program laid out of how to build genuine, heartfelt connection to water, to earth, to air, to fire, and then to the rocks, to the rivers, to the hawks, to the oak trees, to everything that is out there in the web of consciousness so that we can begin to reach it in a way that's not uh, crowded or clouded by our ego, by our projections, by our judgments, that's clean and clear and coherent. And we can ask for help for how we can become what it is that we need to be, how we can create something new that will emerge from this super hyper complex system that is humanity because we wouldn't be here alive if amazingly surprising things didn't emerge out of incredibly complex systems. And I am really putting a lot of faith and hope into the fact that as we accelerate towards a climate and ecological crisis, there is a hope in the world that we can make a difference and we can change and we can be what the world needs us to be. So coming soon to a computer near you, accidentalgods.life. We are hoping to launch around the 1st of January, but if you're interested, you can go to the front page of the Accidental Gods website now, and there's a join up uh, form where you can put in your 
your name and your email, and then we will email you as soon as we go fully live. So that's uh, www.accidentalgods, all one word, dot life. Come along and join us because we are going to change the world. And thank you, Alex, for the chance to tell everybody. You are very welcome. So together we will change the world. We shall. We shall. Yay. What a perfect stopping point. I really should let you go after that, but I have two more announcements to make. If you enjoyed our conversation with Michaela Hempen, you're going to want to know about our Clicker Training Science Camp, which is going to be May 12 through 16, 2020 at the Clicker Center. That's my home barn in upstate New York. I'll be joined by Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, and Michaela Hempen. And as a very special treat, we're going to have daily Feldenkrais sessions with Natalie von Kommenberg. The main theme for the presentations will be what Michaela has been sharing with us, errorless learning and stimulus control. We'll be looking both at the theory and the practice. The resident animals will join us as teachers. That means we'll be working with my cashmere goats as well as the horses. If you haven't worked with goats before, you are in for a treat. For more information, go to my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find the full description of the science camp, as well as all the other conferences and clinics I'll be giving in 2020. And one final announcement. The new revised edition of my book, The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, is now available through my website. I published the original version of the book in 2003, and I've taught a lot of clinics in the intervening years, which means I've got a lot more to say about all of the lessons. So when it was time to reprint the book, I decided it was also time to give it an update. You can order the new book at my website, theclickercenter.com. And now, all that's left to say is thank you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>